Hi, and welcome to my show, the Danielle Newnan Podcast, where I interview tech founders and innovators to learn the inspiring human stories behind the game-changing tech we use every day. Today's guest is the legendary Nolan Bushnell, serial entrepreneur, co-founder of Atari, and pioneer of the video games industry. After showing an early interest in engineering, Nolan went on to study electrical engineering before setting up Atari with Ted Dabney and Al Alcorn. And you can listen to my interview with Al in Series 1, Episode 8. Atari experienced huge success with Pong, which was one of the first computer games ever created. But whilst it was hugely popular, Atari was born at a time when venture capital didn't really exist and IP could not be protected. And so the journey to keeping the company going was much tougher than it is today. And by the time Warner Communications made an offer for the company, Nolan was ready to sell. In this interview, we look back at gaming history. Nolan talks me through the highs and lows of building Atari, the traits he looks for when hiring, and why one of his biggest regrets is turning down an offer from Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak to own one third of Apple. But a quick note before we get into the interview. If you want to sponsor this podcast, please do reach out and you can have your ad read by me each week at this point of the episode and have your message reach over 120,000. But now, back to my interview with Nolan Bushnell. I want to say thank you very much for joining me. Um, I always like, when I interview people, I always like to go back to their childhood to see how it shaped them. And I think there was a, a specific incident in Mrs. Cook's third grade class. Can you tell me more about that? Yes, but I, I would actually like to go back one step earlier. Because oh, I please think, do. Because I think um, I, was, I was created because I early on understood or, or was given really good feedback about entrepreneurship. And that was when I was probably six or seven. Um, my mother said, we had a garden out back and she said, we just got too many strawberries. We're gonna have to give them away. And I went to the grocery store with her just tagging along and noticed that they were selling for strawberries for 50 cents a basket. And, um, and I thought to myself, huh. So I went home, filled and found a lot of baskets that we had sitting in the garage, these little, little basket things, you know, and, uh, went door to door selling strawberries. And I made $8 in an hour and a half. Wow. And that's in a world where my allowance was 25 cents a week. And you got 50 cents for mowing a lawn. Mm. So all of a sudden, I said, you know, wow, if you if you do an enterprise, that's important. Then, so that kind of set the whole idea of make a job, don't take a job <laughs> as, as a mindset. The mm. next one was Miss Cook. And she would she would assign one student to get to play with the magic science box that was locked in the closet. And she assigned me the one on electricity. And so I could go back on back table and do the experiments that they had in the book. 
and they had dry cells and switches and little lights and and a little motor and what have you and i was smitten and uh, i went home that night and or that afternoon and set up a card table in the corner of my bedroom found every piece of wire flashlight battery light switch i could and i started tinkering tinkering and i just never never stopped sure well, thank you for going back a bit further, because actually I do I do like to go as far back as I can. Um, what was the story? Wasn't there a neighbor also that was quite a big influence on you? Absolutely. A guy named, he was, he was Chet Ashby, and he was a ham radio operator. And he kind of took me under my wings, and I got, uh, I got my first ham radio license when I was 10 years old. And, uh, and he was, um, you know, he, he would be the guy who, when I had a question about something electronic, uh, he was my go-to guy. And I spent all my money on ham gear and electronic parts and had a giant 50-foot pole on the top of my, my parents' house. I got thinking, how many parents would allow their son to put a 50-foot red and white striped pole on the top of their house with the red light blinking on the top of it? You know, <laughs> you know, and the red light blinking on the top of it. I mean, you know, there were no airplanes <laughs> going to hit the, <laughs> hit the pole. But I thought it was, it, it was really kind of cool. And uh, mm. so this entrepreneurial spirit started at a young age. Um, wasn't there? Wasn't it your first business? I know it's not an official business, but didn't you start on a business at ten? That's another interesting thing. When I was doing ham radio, I was. I was a little bit of a poser because everybody I was talking to on the, on the ham waves were all adults and I wanted to fit in. And of course they didn't know that I was a 10 year old kid. And, uh, and I would try to make my voice sound a little lower cause I, my voice hadn't changed yet. But the other problem was that ham radio gear was expensive. And so I had to figure out ways to make money and so I set up a TV repair business, you know, because I understood the electronics of the TVs and most of the problems with TVs in those days, they were all tube based. You just had to replace the right tube. There, I, my marketing clicked in a little bit. And I realized that, I mean, the TV in those days was a very, very expensive proposition. So it represented a month's wages for a lot of the people in the neighborhood. And so, to let a 10 year old kid mess with it was a little bit of an act of faith, at least in the <laughs> early days. But a, uh, a house call, and they were all big units, so that it was all a house call, from the regular guys was, was five bucks. I charged 50 cents. But what they didn't know is when I replaced a tube, I marked the tubes up a lot. So mm -hmm. that, you know, I, I found a wholesale plot, place to buy the tubes that I was replacing and I'd mark them up. And so I would net more than $5 in a house call. And so sure. that was the thing. And slowly as I, as my reputation got as a, a can do guy, I was able to even up my house call fee from a dot from 50 cents to a dollar to, I think we, I ended up charging two bucks, still <laughs> discount from the other guys, but it was, was a good business. My summer job was a at the amusement park. 
I started out just selling balls to knock down milk bottles, and I got promoted to be manager of the whole department. And so at, uh, I guess, 20 years old, I was managing what was essentially a, a, a $12 million annual income business. And, uh, and I've often felt that that was kind of my MBA. My, my mm. boss at the time would, uh, he, he instructed by yelling at me. <laughs> but but learned a lot. Was this while you were doing your degree? Correct. And then entrepreneurially, I would um, set up games at the county fair that were mine. They were similar to the arcade, uh, the um, the midway games that I did at the park, and that was very very lucrative for me. And uh, and so that was another entrepreneurial whack. <laughs> And so you had this great entrepreneurial spirit. What was your ambition kind of growing up? You were obviously doing the electrical engineering degree. What did you think you were going to do once you graduated? I knew that I was going to be my own boss, ultimately. Um, I hadn't really thought about, seriously, about doing a video game. Though I'd had the idea when... I had played a game called Space War on the big million dollar computers while I was in college. Um, and I knew that if I put a coin slot on that monitor, that it would make money, just not enough to pay for a million dollar computer. I knew that if the, um, that the cost of electronics was going to be dropping throughout the years. And so I just kind of filed it away, but I don't think it was ever really part of my, uh, my idea of, uh, of what I was going to be when I grew up. So after your degree, you, you joined a company called Ampex. You actually grew up in Utah, didn't you? That's correct. And was Ampex, Ampex was in Silicon Valley, is that right? That's correct. So what drew you to Silicon Valley in the first place? Well, I knew that the silicon chip was going to be important. I'm a bit of a philosopher and, and I actually, you know, changed my major to philosophy for a while, but there's this whole theory that if you want to be in the kingdom, you want to sit to the right hand of the king. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and I felt that the right hand of the king in this case was Silicon Valley. And uh, I also knew that in terms of electronics, there was not that much happening in Utah, you know, from an industry standpoint. And then more than that, I really wanted to get out of Utah. I always felt that I maybe was a little too big for my britches, but I didn't. <laughs> I, I always felt that I was being stifled a little bit in Utah. Um, so you moved to Silicon Valley. You joined Ampex. Is this where you meet Ted Dabney and Al? Exactly. Ted Dabney was my office mate and Al Alcorn was, uh, he was on a work study program and he was our tech, but he was um, going six months at Berkeley in engineering and six months off. And so his six months off, he was our tech. And when did the idea for setting up your own business come about? I think that the, uh, it was triggered by, I was playing Go with a friend and he said, do you want to play Space Wars? And I said, yeah, I haven't played it since I was in college. Well, he, he was working for the artificial intelligence lab at Stanford and he had access. And so we went up one night and played Space War for a year, for a long time. And that really rekindled the idea a lot. 
I think the next day at work, I started pouring through the literature, trying to figure out the cheapest computer I could get that, that I felt would be strong enough. And I found one that I thought was, was pretty good, but I would have to multitask and drive th three or four monitors with that one computer. And it just wasn't, it just wasn't strong enough to do that. And so what I started doing was offloading tasks from the computer to little hardware things that I would create. And, uh, but I still, you know, and I hadn't bought the computer. I was, uh, this was all doing, you know, working out on paper. I was going to solve the problem, I thought, over Thanksgiving holidays. And, uh, you know, in the US, the Thanksgiving, you know, you, you, everything closes down on Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and you get the whole four day weekend. And I just got so frustrated. I said, I can't do this. The tech has to get cheaper. And then I had the epiphany. I said, well, why can't I create these, do these little circuits and do the whole thing, throw away the computer. And, uh, and that was the epiphany breakthrough that not only, was it possible, but it made the economics so much better all the way around. So instead of a, a big thing where you had to have multiple monitors, each monitor could work by itself. So it, it fit right into the coin-operated game ecosystem. And so with these three guys, so was it originally just you and Ted, and then you brought Al on? That's correct. And so you decided to go and set up on your own. What what investment did you put in or what did you seek investment to start with? This will sound strange, but this was kind of before venture capital. Right. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it really hadn't become a thing. In fact, I hadn't heard the name venture capital probably until we'd been in business for two or three years. It was really uh, the business, the original business model was that we were going to design games and license them to companies that had factories and, and marketing and all that. And so um, Ted and I each put in $250. And uh, that was just basically parts to build a prototype. And it wasn't even a complete prototype. It was just a kind of a proof of concept. And that was enough for us to get a license or to, a licensee, Nutting Associates, to build our first game. So what did the first game look like? When you went to Nutting, what did it kind of, what was it do, what you were able to do with it? Was it just literally a prototype? Well, what it was, we were able to have a rocket ship flying straight up or straight down. You know, the turning of the rocket ship, we hadn't gotten that perfected. I had a good idea of how I was going to do it, but that was kind of hard. And, um, and then the whole thing of, of shooting at a, flying saucer and what have you, uh, that hadn't been done. It was just really a uh, one rocket ship on the screen flying up or down. You know, it was, it was actually quite impressive. It turned out that the computer gener or the, the image that my little hardware stack was doing was very crisp. It, it was crisper than broadcast TV. So, you know, all of a sudden they said, wow, this looks really good. And so what, what was Nutting? What, how, how did you end up being involved with Nutting? I went to, <laughs> I had a dentist appointment and I was 
told my dentist what I was working on. And he says, one of my patients works for a company that is kind of in that space. And he gave me the phone number of the guy. I called him up and he said, yeah. He came and looked at the prototype. He says, yeah, we've got to do this. And so he invited me up to the thing. We brought the prototype up and cut the deal at Nutting. And he worked for Nutting. So it was really a, a link through my dentist. So what led to you? I have actually interviewed Al and he's told me the story about Pong. Um, well, did he originally think it was a demo? Yeah, we, we, um, I, I saw it as a throwaway project to just get Al up to speed um, because it was simple and, and um, like the, the rotation circuitry on computer space was really tricky. And I felt that that was too big of a first bite. We were actually going to be working on a driving game, which is what I had a contract for with another company. Pong, as we played with it and made some changes and tweaked it here and tweaked it there, turned out to become very, very fun. You know, and uh, all of a sudden I said, well, you know, maybe we can uh, license this one off. And so I took, the pro took a prototype of the Pong game to Chicago and, and thought I could maybe get them to take the pong game instead of uh, instead of the driving game. Well, they didn't want it because they were worried that a coin-op game that was only two-player, there'd never been a coin-op game that was only a two-player. It all had a one-player mode as well. And so I was disappointed that they said no. But then the famous story of we'd put a the second prototype on location. And that's when it earned so much money, the, the cash box filled up. Is this an Andy Caps? That's the Andy Caps. Yeah. 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 I read a story about how uh, it was a bar that had never normally had queues outside of kind of drinking hours. Uh, and yet suddenly people were queuing up before it was even open to have a go. Exactly. And so when it was that good, big a success, I thought, hey, you know, Maybe we can actually build this ourselves, you know, and we had enough money to build 13 units. So I decided to do 12, 13 is considered an unlucky number. <laughs> and so we built, we built 12 and, um, and then the margin on that was enough that we could build 30 and then we did 60 and then we did 140 and we just ramped up using the, the margin of the units that we built. So, so Pong was a runaway success, but as a company, I, I've heard you say before that it wasn't always easy going. Can you tell me about some kind of the obstacles or the early day hardships that you had to deal with in getting the company going and hiring? What were some of the bigger obstacles? Well, the, the big obstacle was that I'd never really done a manufacturing company before. And, uh, and I thought, you know, when you hire people, you went down to the unemployment office and hired. What you didn't realize is that most of the people there were drug addicts and, and, and ne'er-do-wells. <laughs> so it turned out that the TVs that we had were very easily stealable and fensible because we didn't have our systems in place. And so we just had uh, all kinds of early problems. But the real problem that Atari had is we never had enough money because we were bootstrapping. And so, you know, we, uh, 
we just didn't have enough cash to run efficiently. Um, we were always making trade-offs and also, you know, like we didn't have, we didn't have a factory. We just had kind of a garage shop. And as we got big, we rented a defunct skating rink, you know, and, and, uh, that wasn't really an ideal environment. We didn't have, you know, processes for purchasing, uh, you know, it wasn't until later that we even built a cage to for our inventory, you know, stuff like that, that normal companies have had for years. We were just making it up as we were going along. And that was the problem. But it also worked in your favor in some respects. But how, how did you deal with competition? Because I understand that it, it wasn't the best at the beginning in terms of competitors coming out and obviously having more resources than you. What were the things that kind of kept you ahead of the game? I like to say of the 150,000 Pong type machines that went into the market, Atari only did about 20,000, 20,000 of them. So we got a, we, we, we had a much smaller part of the game that we pioneered. Well, in the coin-op business, games have a lifetime, a manufacturing lifetime, maybe six months to a year and a half. Since we were the, everybody else just copied, we were the only ones that really understood the technology. So we felt that our only tool was innovation. You know, we, we could do that. And so we started building different games. And, uh, and when, when people decided that they were going to copy those, we started putting little time bombs in them. So, for example, we were able to buy semiconductors that were uniquely marked for us. And we had them marked with a part number that made it look like it was different. So instead of a flip-flop, it was a, an AND gate. And so if they just read the circuits, purchased those, put them in the boards, the boards wouldn't work. Brilliant. And we, we were so successful that one of the most ardent copiers who was a company just down the street from us um, actually declared bankruptcy because he had all the, the, the floor full of these machines that couldn't work and wouldn't, couldn't be sold. Wow. And we had the temerity of uh, having a champagne celebration on his front lawn. <laughs> <laughs> Why not? <laughs> Why not? It was a bit cheeky. <laughs> well, I, I think you did well. So you, you've hired, you know, a number of people. I know to start with, I think you even, uh, didn't you employ your children's babysitter? Like you employed like friends, people you knew. Correct. As the company grew and you found more success, uh, obviously the culture must have changed somewhat because you're employing people outside of your circle of friends. Well, what does it take, as well as your book that you said, um, so you're kind of being able to hire the next Steve Jobs. What, what do you look for? in the staff that you employ? What I realized pretty early on is that we could teach, our, our technology was sufficiently different and the, the tasks were sufficiently different that their experience was less important. And so I decided I was going to hire based on one characteristic and that was enthusiasm. You know, I wanted people who were alive that were who wanted to make something of themselves, who wanted to um, make a difference. 
and once you do that, you it becomes very clear who the enthusiasts are and who the non-enthusiasts are. And then this was sort of at the height of the hippie movement where, you know, the summer of love and all that. And I had decided that I wanted to create a meritocracy in which you were judged not by the process, but by the outcome. The outcomes were the only thing that mattered. And so once you decide you're going to get rid of process, that says, I don't care what you work, you know, where, I don't care when you work, I don't care what you think, I don't care what you're, you know, where you went to school, um, I don't care, you know, whether you're a woman or a man or a what have you. If you focus totally on outcomes, it's a great equalizer. So how did you end up employing Steve Jobs? Because he was young. He was, was he still a teenager when you employed him? He was 19. He was enthusiastic. He, you know, Steve, one of the things about Steve, he had one speed all on for everything he did. Um, I've often felt that um, that characteristic ultimately killed him because when he went back to Apple, it was it was a mess, and mm. uh, and I think and I heard that for six months when he came back, he was working eighteen hour days, seven days a week, and I mm. think that that kind of stress is never good for you. One hundred percent. So Steve Jobs comes on board, but you also you managed to get two Steves for the price of one. Uh, is it true that you got Steve Jobs to work evenings in the hope that Woz might come in? Yes. Well, Woz is a true savant, one of the smartest guys in in this particular area of technology. And uh, yeah, I, I felt that, you know, they were good buddies and and Woz would always be there with with Steve. And I felt let's just formalize it a little bit and we'll put we'll create a night shift for just for Steve and Steve. <laughs> And what, what was Steve Jobs doing when he was working for you? Steve was a technician, but he was basically doing a lot of board cleanup and things like that for, for the prototypes. And then I, uh, when I was pretty sure that, that Woz was going to be part of it, I assigned him the game of breakout. He did it famously. It was really a good job. Um, so going back to the culture of the company, I um, had a chat with Donna Bailey, who worked on Centipede, and she said she said that she has some fond memories, and she was saying that I've recently concluded that the people who worked in video games back then were using the skills and interests we developed as children. We didn't know what we would do with those early skills and interests, but we saved them up and found a place to use them, which I thought was a lovely description of Atari. It sounds like it was a bunch of young people who were innovative and able, you know, thanks to you and, and the management to get on with what they needed to do. Absolutely. And, you know, Donna was, I remember her so well. I think there were three women in the technical side with all these men and she, she could hold her own with any mm. of them. And it was really, you know, wonderful. I've actually kept in touch with her on, yeah. over the years. Mm. Uh, are you in touch with many of the others? Because it seems like there is this kind of camaraderie among the Atari crew. Like I've watched various documentaries and it seems like it's a friendship that's lasted a lifetime. In many cases it has. I mean, I, um, 
we have reunions every once in a while and everybody gets together and drinks beer together. Oh, that's lovely. Um, okay, so I, I spoke to another old Atarian, if that's the name for people that worked at Atari. I spoke to Al um, and just before I interviewed you today, I actually asked him if there was any stories that he could tell me that I could ask you about that I couldn't possibly know, but that would be quite fun to bring up. And he's brought up two. One was that Don Valentine was the first investor in Atari. And apparently you'd negotiated a price for that investment. And at the last minute, you had to tell Don that you doubled the price on the very last day. What was that about? Well, yeah, I mean, he, he'd kind of wheedled me down. We negotiated a price and, and Atari was just really, really needed the money. And so I was kind of willing to suck it up and, and agree to a, a low price. But it took him so long to close that the company started getting better. And, and so I just looked at it and everybody was against me. I mean, Al, Joe, all the guys say, you know, we really need the money. And I said, no, I'm willing to walk away from this. It's not a fair deal. And, uh, and I doubled the price. And uh, three days later, Don came back and said, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Um, the other thing he said, which I thought sounded quite funny, he said there was a time when you went golfing in Hawaii with the president of Namco, and apparently you sent a golf cart over the cliff. Do you recall this? I didn't send it over the cliff. I just <laughs> forgot to set the emergency brake and it rolled down the hill and then over the ah, cliff. <laughs> I see, that explains it. Okay, so you were having a lot of fun at Atari, but it was also quite tough, I understand. When did it become apparent to you that, I, I know Warner you know, came to you, when was it that you thought, okay, it's, it's time to move on? It was really because of the, the 2600. Uh, it was a wonderful product, but we realized we just didn't have enough cash to get it into production and, and to market it. And so we were all set to go IPO, but the market kind of blew up at the time. And so that wasn't possible for us. And so it was either cancel the 2600 or get at an outside investor. So we started out with the path of just trying to get a corporate investor to put money in. And uh, and because the amount of money we needed was a little more than what venture capital in those days would pretty much limited to three or $4 million. We needed about eight to 10 million. And, uh, and so we were out pitching it and Warner came along as one of the guys that was interested. And they said, we wanna buy the whole company. And they, pitched a price that seemed like a good thing. There was some upside to it. And I think, I think I was tired. You know, it had been a real slug. And the idea of just kind of having a, enough money and, 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 you know, cashing in some of my shares so that I'd have some personal wealth. I mean, at that point, I was richer than I thought I was ever going to be, you know. And, uh, and so my life was kind of set it's kind of a love-hate relationship. I, I really, there's a lot of me that wishes I hadn't sold Atari, but at the same time, I kind of got my life settled. I was able to focus on my personal life. I got married, started to have a family, you know, it, it was actually kind of a good thing in, in, in a lot, lot of ways in terms of my pathway. Mm. And then I got Chuck E. Cheese 
and was able to focus my energies on that. And that was fun mm. too. I was, I was going to ask you about Chuck E. Cheese. So for those that don't know, because in, in England, we didn't have any Chuck E. Cheese, but it was, was it a restaurant train that sold pizza, but also had video games? Is that right? Correct. And robotic characters that would sing and put on well, a I show. wish we had it because we didn't have anything like that. We had McDonald's and Pizza Hut. <laughs> I mean, we, we could have done yeah. with something like that. Well, you know, we tried to open in Europe and there's something that happened with Europe. And I think it had to do with the exams that you, the kids take when they're 14 or 15. And so parents in Europe didn't want to take their kids out of school on a, a you know, out to dinner or have fun on a school night. You can't run a restaurant chain based on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And, um, and so I think that that, uh, or that was that was kind of a problem for us. And um, I mean, we opened we opened a uh, a store in Paris that was good for six months, and then we tried one in Germany, and it was good for six months, and uh, and then we packed it in. It was successful, however, in Australia. Oh, wow. So. That's interesting. And so in America, it was hugely successful. What was the transition like for you? What, what was the time period? Was it immediately after Atari that you had Chuck E. Cheese? It was actually a coincidence. It was, um, I sold in 76 and I bought Chuck E. Cheese from them in 77 right. and was doing it while I was still chairman of, of, of Atari. And then I left Atari in the, in, January of 79. And at that time, Chuck E. Cheese was starting to really roar. Mm. It's fantastic because I know the Atari that once Warner bought it, I know that I've heard the culture change and obviously it, it didn't thrive as well as it could have if, if you were still at the helm. So Chuck E. Cheese must have been a brilliant distraction. Did you find that it was hard to let go of Atari and focus on Chuck E. Cheese or was it a fairly easy thing to do? Kind of easy. I mean, you know, I kept watching Atari out of one eye mm. <laughs> a little bit. And I was actually planning to, I had a non-compete when I sold Atari, I had a non-compete that I couldn't be in the video game business, but it was about to expire. And I was thinking that I'd get back and build something. And I actually did, um, I had a company called Sente that uh, created some video games, a little different. And, uh, but it was, it was a different time and uh, I ended up selling it uh, to Bally, actually. And with, with Atari and with Chuck E. Cheese, you, you experience these huge successes. You experience the real full um, entrepreneurial kind of journey with all of its highs and lows. What, what are your favorite things about building a business? Like what are the kind of early days that you find the most enjoyable? Because you, you've set up many businesses. These are just two, right? Right. I like the process of invention and figuring out markets and figuring out features and pricing and, and that kind of thing. I like what I call Greenfield or the blue ocean, you know, things that have never been done before, you know, products that people don't know they need. <laughs> and, uh, and that's always been fun because that's where, where all the interesting things happen. When you're dealing with technology and markets and what have you, that's fun. As a company gets bigger, you spend all your time with the boring people. 
stockbrokers, attorneys, accountants. Mm. <laughs> I figured out the trick. Oh, yeah? I am not CEO anymore. I spin up the companies, I find a good CEO, and they do all the work. And so I'm I'm the I'm the ultimate entrepreneur in which I spin them up and I nurture them, but I don't run them. Fair enough. And also the other thing is people always talk about you as an entrepreneur, but you're a brilliant engineer. I mean, this is things that, you know, people don't often, when, when, when we read about you, it's all about the entrepreneurship, but you're a good engineer. I, I think we forget that. You know, I, I, really, I really like technology. I mean, if you look around in my background, I've got test equipment, I've got soldering irons, I've got transistors, I've got resistors, capacitors, Arduinos, Raspberry Pis. I can build stuff here. Mm. And do, and um, and it's great fun. What what tech are you most excited about in the next five to ten years? Because I know you were really into robotics, and you still have a big belief about how how we're going to have robots in our homes, which I believe too. I'm just waiting for it to happen. What what are you most excited about? Well, I'm actually on the board of a self driving car company, you know, a, a software stack, and that's brilliant, and, and I love it. I'm also very interested in smart contracts in the crypto world. And I think that there's some interesting things that can happen in the game world using cryptos. There's a element of some of the new tokens that you can actually embed software into the token itself that self-execute in certain situations. And that to me is a very interesting dynamic for gameplay. Is this something you're working on or working with people that are working on it? When you say working on, I am investigating, I'm doing research. I'm, I'm kind of in this area where I'm curious, but I haven't pulled the trigger to say, this is what I'm going to do. Yeah. Now. Watch this space. Okay. Um, if you could go back in time, is there anything, I know you talked about regrets earlier when you talked about Atari. Is there anything you would do differently? Only about a million things. <laughs> well, for one thing, I uh, I was offered a third of Apple Computer for fifty thousand dollars that I turned down. I would do that differently. Yes, I would say yes. <laughs> um, I think that um, I shouldn't have gotten into the robotics business when I did. The technology was not mature enough. That was a mistake. I think I would. I should have sold. Chuck E. Cheese when I was getting bored with it a little bit earlier. It had been a better exit for me. I think I would have been that I should have started at the at sort of the early stages of the internet. I should have started a game company focused on internet games. But you were, weren't and you doing that, but you just didn't complete. Is that right? I messed around with it, but I didn't take it as seriously as I should have. I mean, I saw the internet coming, but I didn't see it as a pervasive customer thing because in the early days of the internet, it was very hard to use. Like you, you basically needed to be a nerd and, and know, you know, uh, a couple of, of pretty obscure computer languages in order to do it and in order to work it. And I said, you know, mom and pop is not going to be able to do this. And then all of a sudden the browser came along and it changed everything. And uh, 
And that's when I should have jumped. And I didn't. But you, you were busy with other things. It's not like you rested on your laurels. Um, lots of people know who you are. I, I think there's a film in the works, if I'm right. What would you say is one thing that people get wrong about you? What do they not know about you? Oh, I think they think that, um, that it was all about the technology. I think the hardest thing and the most difficult part of my journey was funding a company, uh, you know, growing a company with no money. I think that the, the thing I'm really proud of is that I was able to build Atari as big as it was, as fast as it was, with no cash. Mm. <laughs> you know, and uh, I mean, we didn't get any venture capital until we were already at 30 million in sales. Yeah. That's really hard. Mm. And, and I, and that's what I'm really proud of, actually. Um, last question. If you could go back in time, and I know that when I ask these questions, people always think, well, it's quite hard to say because I wouldn't want to change anything. But if you could go back in time to a younger Nolan before you've even started your first company, what's one piece of advice you'd offer him? Never give up. That's a good ending. Thank you so much for your time today, Nolan. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to my interview with Nolan Bushnell. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, please feel free to rate and review the podcast because it helps others to find it too. I think there are so many great takeaways from this conversation with Nolan, but as a serial entrepreneur and innovator, one of my favorites was Nolan's thoughts on creating the right environment to nurture innovation. I think his answer offers a great insight into why his businesses were so successful, but also why it's important today and how we should look past the resume in order to employ true game changers. So during the interview, I asked Nolan what he looked for in the staff that he employs. And he said, our tech was sufficiently different that experience wasn't important. So I decided I was going to hire based on one characteristic and that was enthusiasm. I wanted people who were alive, who wanted to make something of themselves, who wanted to make a difference. And once you do that, it becomes very clear who the enthusiasts are and who the non-enthusiasts are. I wanted to create a meritocracy in which you were not judged by the process, but by the outcome. And the outcome was the only thing that mattered. So once you decide you're going to get rid of the process, that says, I don't care where you work. I don't care when you work. I don't care where you went to school. If you just focus only on the outcomes, it's a great equaliser.